Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that this is the third week of a four-part sermon on marriage. And the first week, we spent most of our time on what marriage was like in the garden before the fall and all the marital bliss that Adam and Eve experienced. Last week, we spent all of our time working our way through the effects that sin has had since the fall on all mankind and on our marriages in particular. And we know that because of the truth of the Word of God, that everything that we've read in the biblical narrative is true. But we also know by experience that this is true as well. We know that all marriages struggle, but not every marriage struggles to the same degree. At the end of the day, self-willed sinners marry self-willed sinners, and that alone is bound to produce conflict. You guys can smile. It's okay to smile during this sermon. It makes watching Wheel of Fortune interesting for you Wheel of Fortune watchers because they really do communicate that everyone who's on that show is happily ever after. When they introduce themselves and their family, it's marital bliss. Um, you'll, someone will say to, to a young a lady, they'll say, uh, uh, and, and how, 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 how is your marriage? Uh, how, how's your family? Jean, tell us a little bit about your family. Well, Pat, um, I've been married to the most handsome wonderful man for 16 years. We met, we were 12. We've never said a crossword to one another for our entire lives, and we have three of the most wonderful, beautiful, valedictorian children who are so well-behaved. They cook us breakfast every Saturday morning, and, and Pat, life is great. And, and I'm just waiting for the day when, when they say, and, and, and John, how's you, how, tell us a little about your family, and John says, you know, my wife and I haven't had a decent conversation in the last five years. You know, I, I watch TV. She surfs the internet. I got four very below average children. They don't get along. And, and, and if we ever win this trip, I don't even know who's going to go on it because we would fight all the way there and back. In, my, in our own family, when our kids were old enough, we were at a hotel, and our boys especially were old enough to go down and get breakfast by themselves. I'd come up afterward, and my three boys were as far away from each other they could possibly, we're on a family vacation. One's over there, one's over there, one's in the middle, because they didn't want to hear each other chew. They didn't want to hear each other swallow. And even at home, in a home breakfast, the box of cereal is usually here because they don't want to look at each other in the morning. <laughs> sinners, marry sinners, and then our wives deliver sinners. And that's family life 101, isn't it? Now, if you haven't heard the first two sermons, let me just encourage you to please listen to them because we've already laid a foundation for the 
predicament we're in because of sin. And we've shown that Christ is the solution of the predicament. We've seen that sin has brought death. And it's also caused us to be distant from one another. It's caused us to blame each other and blame others for our sin. And along with that, sin has caused pain and sorrow and misery and heartache and difficulty in the very areas that were designed to bring us great joy and great fulfillment prior to the fall. And if that wasn't enough, one of the other declared consequences of sin among married folks is that the God-ordained order in marriage is now challenged. Prior to the fall, God had established that Adam is the head, the one responsible, the one held accountable. And Eve, though an equal, in every respect, followed Adam willingly during that time period. And after the fall, God declared that Eve's desire would be to rule or dominate Adam, and Adam would subsequently rule over and dominate Eve. The bliss of the partnership the, the, the bliss of marriage prior to the fall, that loving relationship was replaced with self-will, with strife, with rebellion, and both husband and wife, because we're sinners, we want our own way. Now, most of you have been with us throughout the book of Colossians. And let me just say that it's not an accident that Paul does not talk about a how to live in our marriages until he builds this theological foundation for us to be reconciled to God. Remember that the, the restoration that was promised and pictured in the garden was going to come through one who would be born from the seed of a woman who would crush the head of Satan and whose sacrificial life and sacrificial death would, would cover the guilt and the shame of our sin like the animal skins covered the guilt and shame of the sin of Adam and Eve. And Paul, from the very beginning of Colossians, the, the beginning of his epistle shows that these Colossian believers have heard, they've understood, and they learned the gospel. They learned the good news about Christ, who was the promised one from Genesis 3. They've been redeemed by God. They've been reconciled to God through the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this wonderful, miraculous work of salvation, these men and women have now been given new hearts. They've been given new desires to put off their old sinful lives and to put on Christ and put on His attributes, His character, which is to produce unity among others who you normally and ordinarily wouldn't have unity with. And we accomplish this through bearing with one another, forgiving each other, and loving one another the way God has forgiven us and the way he's loved us in Christ. Now, why do I go over that again? Because the redemption and the reconciliation and salvation that you've received by Christ that gives you the grace and the power to live in harmony with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, that is supposed to impact your marriage as well. So the putting to death immorality and the putting to death impurity and putting off anger and wrath and malice and putting off abusive speech and putting on kindness and compassionate hearts and patience. That is just part of living with other believers in the body of Christ, and that is the new you. That's the reconciled you. 
You're a new creature in Christ. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. And those who are closest to you, your spouse and your children, they should be the recipients of your new behavior in Christ. It should impact your marriage. But the command in the garden that a man should leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh, that command is stated again in Ephesians 5 by the Apostle Paul. So though it's more difficult, the institution of marriage and the command to become one flesh still remains. And because of the promised deliverer, because of the promised Savior, because of the one who came to bring back what was lost in the garden, because of Christ, we can live in our marriages with great hope and great joy and great fulfillment as God desires for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. It starts with our new life in Christ. So salvation affects everything, especially our marriages and especially our family life. So a Christ-centered marriage doesn't start with a marriage conference. A Christ-centered marriage doesn't start with four ways to love my wife. It doesn't start with five ways to communicate better or, or, or having a date night, so to speak. None of those are bad. But marriage starts with the understanding that a person is a sinner in desperate need for a Savior. And the renewal we experience in Christ should give us the grace to be kind and the grace to be pure and the grace to be forgiving and the grace to be forbearing. And it should create a humility in us so when we do sin against our spouse, we should feel guilty. We should grieve. We should feel remorse. And we should ask for forgiveness. I hope you do. Beloved, if Christ has not transformed you, if you're not on a trajectory to be more like Jesus, even though it's slow, if the Spirit of God does not indwell you so that you're not guilty or remorseful over your sin, and you don't come and ask others, especially your, your spouse, for forgiveness, then you need to examine yourself, really, to see if you're in the faith. Because Christ changes us from the inside out. And one of the first evidences of salvation is the Holy Spirit lives in you, convicting you of your sin, bringing you to repentance, conforming you to his image. See, that's where it starts. Christian marriage begins by becoming a Christian. Now, now, now with that by way of introduction, I, I just want to go back to Colossians 3. And I want to do three things, at least three things. First, I want to set a historical context. Um, second, Along with that, I, I want to give a quick overview of the whole text, and then thirdly, we'll get into the specifics of what the definition of submission means. So that's kind of where we're going. Um, this is gonna be, we're going to cover a lot of ground. Uh, please follow along in your Bible, and this will probably be more instructional than most of the other sermons you've heard me preach. And it's designed to be paired with next week's sermon about husbands loving our wives. So attendance next Sunday is mandatory. It's always mandatory, but attendance every Sunday is mandatory. Okay, 
historical context. This will help us have a better understanding of the marital relationships that were taking place in the Colossian context at their homes. William Barclay writes this. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. The possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flock or his material goods. She had no legal rights, whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights, whatever, in the initiation of divorce. And the only grounds on which a divorce might be awarded her were if her husband developed leprosy, became an apostate, or ravished a virgin. In Greek society, which is the Colossian church's Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go marketing. She lived in the women's apartments, did not join her menfolk even for meals. From her, there was, a de- there was demanded complete servitude and chastity. But her husband could go out as much as he chose, could enter into as many relationships outside marriage as he liked without occurring any stigma. Both Jewish and Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belong to the husbands and all the duties belong to the wife. Now, wouldn't you say that the curse of sin stated in Genesis 3, he will rule over you, he will dominate you, had literally taken over the culture? Men who were in positions of authority wielded their power by putting their wives in a position of slavery and they mastered them. They dominated them. They ruled them. This was systemic in all society, ingrained in boys and girls at young ages. However, Christianity had come to Colossae. Christianity is counterculture in every time period. We know that from the time that Jesus came on the scene, he elevated women to a place of respect and honor that was due them because they were created in the image of God and they had value and dignity and worth. He did the unthinkable by simply having a conversation with a woman at the well. Two of his really good friends were Mary and Martha, and they talked theology together. In Luke 8, there's a list of women who were following Christ, who had a little, uh, set up a, a program for them to contribute to the needs of the ministry, similar to the 12 disciples, aren't talked about very often. And many of those same women were there at the crucifixion. In Galatians 3, Paul states that men and women are one in Christ, and Peter calls women heirs with men, fellow heirs in the grace of life. The way Christ treated women and these positive statements about women throughout Scripture uh, demonstrate Christ's view, the Word of God's view of women, but would have been unheard of in the first century greater culture. But since salvation had come to Colossae, There are now men and women in the church who were gloriously saved. And prior to salvation, the men very likely had treated their wives as less than human, treated their wives as you would a farm animal, treated them in a way that was domineering and harsh, insensitive, and even cruel. And now they're told to love their wives, which means to have love for someone or something based on sincere appreciation and high regard. 
What a difference Christ makes. The one you used to think as less than. The one that you used to think of only being for your needs, you're now to have a high regard and a high appreciation for. I mean, some men, even in the church, in our day, look at their wives as an object. They've reduced marriage down having a maid and a prostitute. And if my wife can't provide these services, then I just don't need them. However, in Christ, a husband is, is commanded to unconditionally love his wife based on his sincere appreciation and his high regard for her. Beloved, that alone brings us back to the garden state all by itself. Remember when Adam saw Eve? He'd been looking at animals all day long and couldn't find a suitable helper. And when God brought Eve to Adam, he exclaimed, remember, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We said before, it's, it's, it's wow, it's joyous astonishment. He was very appreciative. He had a very high regard for Eve, his wife, before the fall. Then remember the fall. The woman you gave me, she gave it to me. She made me do it, and I ate well, the fall changes everything. But Paul goes on to say, don't be harsh with your wife. It means don't have bitter resentment toward your wife. Don't become angry and incensed against your wife. And doesn't that also seem to offset the curse in Genesis 3, where it states, you, you, you will rule or dominate over her. And to rule and dominate and control people sometimes, you have to use harsh words. And it's wrong. And when you don't get your way, it causes bitterness and resentment and that festers. Now, I know we're dealing with wives submitting today, but I wanted to at least mention that to husbands because it's part of the context. When you husbands love your wives, when you appreciate your wives, when you have a high regard for your one flesh partner, and when you're no longer harsh with your wife, then restoration to what it was like in the garden is beginning to take place. We'll have more on that next week. But now notice from the text in Colossians 3 how Paul instructs wives differently than he instructs children and slaves. When you read from Colossians 3.18 through 4.1, you'll notice that Paul addresses three distinct situations in life. And marriage is completely different than the other two. Paul's addressing husbands and wives... He's addressing parents and children. He's addressing masters and slaves. In each of those relationships, there's one in authority and one underneath the authority, but they're not all the same, which means that your wife is your wife, and you treat her like your wife, not your child and not your slave. In verse 20, children are commanded to obey their parents. In verse 22, bond slaves are commanded to obey their masters. We'll look at those in greater detail in the weeks ahead. But wives are not commanded to obey their husbands. The relationship between a husband and a wife is not one that gives a husband the freedom to order his wife around like a child or a slave. And the first clue of this just comes in the distinction that Paul makes between these three relationships. Nowhere in Scripture is a wife told she must obey her husband. One commentator writes that Paul 
did not issue a command to wives to obey their husband, like he commanded children and slaves to obey their parents and masters. Husbands aren't to treat their wives like slaves, barking commands. Husbands are to treat their wives as equals, assuming their God-given responsibility of caring, protecting, and providing for them. This is, this is counterculture to, to a big portion of 21st century Christianity. I have been in places where, where men firmly believe that submission or, or a, a, a helper suitable for him means she will obey me. She will pick up my boxers at the end of the bed, so to speak, on the floor. You don't question your husband. They believe you don't advise your husband. They believe you don't give your opinion to your husband unless you're asked by your husband, and you obey your husband when he asks you to do things. That is not a biblical view of submission. You guys are so stiff. Just wake up. That is not a biblical view of submission. Amen. There's another clue from the passage that a husband should not treat his wife like a child or a slave. And that's because the text clearly expresses the roles and responsibilities of three areas of life mentioned, and none of them are one-sided. Barclay calls this an ethic of reciprocal obligation. Someone else calls this mutual possessiveness and mutual submission. What that means is that both parties have responsibilities, and no one should be allowed to dominate the other. Children are supposed to obey, but what's it say about fathers? Don't exasperate. Don't provoke. Slaves are obey, but masters should treat with fairness and justice. Wives are to submit, but husbands are to love and not be harsh with their wives. This ethic of reciprocal obligation is unheard of in the first century because all the laws we heard were written for the one in authority. In this case, the husband, the father, and the master. The one in authority could treat his wife like a child and like a slave any way he wanted, really, but then again, Christ changed the things. Men, our, our, our wives are equals. There are one flesh partners given to us, as we said earlier, to give companionship and happiness and joy during these fleeting years in this sin-cursed world. You can never have a one flesh partner with someone who's less than you. You can never have a one flesh partner with someone that you feel has to obey you. You can never have a one flesh partner who, who you feel uh, you view as an object. Only one flesh can be with someone who's an equal. Now, I know a lot of the men here because you know, we have relationships. And I just want to say publicly that you're not even an equal to your wife because I know you. All of you married up, okay? All of you married up because I know you. So we don't want to even say we're equal. We're saying all of us married up, right? So what does the word submit mean? The word submit by definition means to arrange under. It's a military term that means to draw up in order to battle. It means to form. It speaks of soldiers in the military under the commanding officer. It speaks of relinquishing one's rights so you can accomplish the goals and plans of another. 
And since you're arranged under someone who has authority, then you're voluntarily and willingly following them. One commentator says it's the exact opposite of self-assertion. It's the opposite of an independent, autocratic spirit. It's the desire to get along with one another in a sweet reasonableness of attitude. So in the church, we submit to one another. Uh, We're giving up our rights, our plans to serve others in the body of Christ. In government, we willingly follow the rules and the laws of the land. We're not acting independently. And then the ultimate example of submission is in Philippians 2, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't look out for his own interests, but for the interests of others, who submitted himself to the Father's will by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yet God the Son, second person in the Trinity, is not less than the Father, but co-equal to the Father, even as he submits to the Father's will. Any of you who have been in the armed services know that when you rank under someone, you're subject to that person, but the person of higher rank is not superior, and the lower rank is not inferior. But without rank, there's total chaos. We all submit to our governing authorities. We submit to our employers. Some of us even have to submit to established rules in neighborhoods, but again, those who make and enforce the rules are not superior. We are not inferior. It is simply for order. Now notice that Paul is stating that being in a submissive role is not easy. It really is one of trust in the Lord. It's one of looking to the Lord for grace and strength. Notice the references to the Lord in Colossians 3 beginning at verse 18. And all these references are specific to those who are under authority. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Then the end of verse 22, bondservants have multiple references to trusting in the Lord. Verse 22, they're to fear the Lord. Verse 23, they're to work as for the Lord and not for men. Verse 24, they're to know the Lord will reward them. They're serving the Lord Christ. Then in 4.1, they're reminded they have a master in heaven who sees everything. Why so many references to the Lord for those who are not in a leadership role? Why so many references to keeping your eyes on the Lord? I think it's because when when you have someone in authority over you, you may not agree with everything that you're being asked to do or where they're going. You may not agree that you're even going in the right direction. And you may not always be treated in a just or fair manner. But just look at our text. Since husbands are told to love their wives and not be harsh with them, there's a strong possibility that they're going to have a tendency to not love them and to be harsh with them. And since fathers are told not to provoke and not to exasperate their children, there's a strong possibility that we're going to provoke and exasperate our children. And since masters are commanded to treat their bondservants justly and fairly, There's a strong possibility that that masters will not do that. And when those in authority are harsh, when those in authority are exasperating, when those in authority are unjust and unfair, it doesn't change the command for, for children to obey or to wives to submit or slaves to obey. It just makes it more difficult. Makes it very difficult. Yet Paul's exhorting us to look past 
the one in authority, to the one who has ultimate authority. Our ultimate obedience and allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is referencing this in every category in the passage. It's just a reminder of that truth. Now, I am not advocating, nor is the Word of God, that anybody stay in a relationship that is physically abusive, where crimes are committed and harm is done. That's a different category altogether, and it's a whole different sermon and whole different scriptures, and we can't go down that path right now. But when you're following poor leadership, when you're following leadership that's unjust and unfair, we follow Peter's admonition in 1 Peter 2 as he reflects on Christ's submission to his suffering, where, where, where he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's exactly what Paul's saying here. He's pointing out the, the reference to those in the submissive role. We look beyond our authority. We trust ourselves in the ultimate judge, the ultimate ruler. We look to him and entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Any one of us, and we all are in submissive roles, have to look past our initial authority to the authority that God has for us. And quite honestly, that is not easy. My wife has had to do this on more than one occasion. Uh, thankfully, I'm growing, and these occasions aren't as prevalent as they used to be. I don't know if you ever had a chance to meet my mom. My mom has these pithy sayings that we laugh about all the time. She'll say that so-and-so has the personality of a grape. My mom will say, so-and-so has a personality of a TV. She'll say, so-and-so took a stupid pill. That was a funny one, too. Well, I've taken a few stupid pills in my day. And, and uh, when, I, when I take that stupid pill, or it's just my sinful response to things, I've made decisions that Deb doesn't agree with. And over time, we usually find out that she's right. But I just wasn't listening. I know that that never happens to any of you. And she submits, and she follows, and she entrusts herself in the one who judges justly. But she also prays out loud. She says, oh God, I can't open this man's eyes. You're going to have to do it. When your wife starts praying out loud, and you have an inkling you took a stupid pill, and you might be wrong, you better go back on your knees and find out exactly what's going on, and maybe even rethink your position. But again, submitting to things that, that are going in a direction that, uh, that you think are wrong is not easy, and you entrust yourself in the one who judges justly. So submission is not easy, but however, taking advantage of your role of authority is actually very easy. History has proven that it's easy for those in authority to take advantage of those who are under their authority, and I think Scripture bears this out as well. On a personal level, I fit in, the, in this text every category of the leadership role. I'm a husband commanded not to be harsh. I'm a father commanded not to provoke or exasperate. I don't own slaves, but I've had employees in the past I have to be just and fair with. And it's not in the text, but I'm also a leader in the church, so I've got people under my authority there as well. So easy to be harsh. It's so easy to exasperate and provoke. So easy to be unfair. It's so easy to be abusive. So anyone in authority has to be looking to Christ for help and for guidance and for wisdom and humility because we need Him. And all those underneath the authority of others also look to Christ for help and for guidance and humility. 
I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ has been the central figure of the book of Colossians from the first verse up until now. First and foremost, when it comes to doctrine, and now he's the central figure in all that we need in our practical Christian living because he's our shepherd and all of us need his leading. Now, as we look more carefully at verse 18, I just want you to notice two things about submission. I want you to notice first that it's personal and second it's subject to God's word. We'll start with being personal. Now, what I mean by this is that all women are not commanded to be submissive to all men. Rather, you as a wife are commanded to be submissive to your husband. Ephesians 5.22 says it more clearly by stating, submit to your own husband. That's your personal husband. Now, that may not sound important at first glance, but let me tell you how important it really is. When you teach that all women are submissive to all men, then you're putting the entire female gender in a position of being under the authority of the entire male gender. And because submission is mistaught to mean obedience, then you're putting all women subservient to all men. And and this does happen. It, it, It happens sometimes even at Christian colleges. If you're in a college science class uh, or a a, a bunch of kids there, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, and you have three men, three young men, three young women, it would not be unusual for the girls, if there's going to be a class project with all six of them, the girls will step back and have a submissive role in the group because they want to learn to be submissive and let the guys lead. Now, the girls may have A's in chemistry, biology, and physics. The boys have B's and C's in chemistry, biology, and physics. Yet because they want to learn submission, and they want to learn to lead, they'll go ahead and be willing to get a bad grade on the paper simply because they think they're following God's ordained plan and order, which is not true. Because all women are not to submit to all men. And, and, and even in some homes I've seen, where parents will teach their daughters they have to submit to their brothers because all women submit to all men. So you have a 13-year-old boy and a 17-year-old girl, and he can order her around because she has to learn submission and he has to learn how to lead. Paul's not teaching that. He's teaching that you as a wife submit to your own husband, not all men. So first and foremost, this is personal. It's not universal. Secondly, in that in the submissive role is always subject to the word of God. Paul says that wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ephesians 5, it's wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And the word fitting means appropriate, it means suitable. When Paul is saying here is your ultimate submission and your ultimate obedience is always to the Lord. So you wouldn't submit to anything that would violate God's word. Your allegiance is always to God first. If a husband asks his wife to sign a tax form that was misreported, if a husband asks his wife to follow him down some paths of impurity, follow him on anything contrary to Scripture, you obey God rather than man because you only follow in the things that are fitting in the Lord and clear violations of Scripture are not. As in any submissive role, we obey God rather than man. As I said, I'm covering a lot of ground. 
I've, so far I've said that submission does not mean obedience. I've said it means to rank underneath. I've said it does not mean you're inferior. We've said it's personal, it's appropriate, and, and, and it's to the Lord, so we're not violating Scripture. But let me round this out by giving you three things, at least, that submission, what submission is not. What submission is not. Uh, first and foremost, it does not mean that you must agree with your husband. I was listening to an interview with someone who had a very high rank in the military, who said that discussions among military leaders of high rank and lower rank, the discussions get really heated, and they don't always agree. They all have strong opinions. But at the end of the day, at the end of the discussion, when a decision is made, they get in line with and support the decision even when they don't agree, which is a wonderful model of how submission works. Men of equal value, different opinions, and still submitting to the final decision. Now let me add, however, that in my experience, and the experience of, of many couples who've been serving Christ for a long time and been married for a long time, I think in most cases, you know, with the Bible as our guide and the Holy Spirit living in and through us, over time, Christ lives in and through us. We're, we're, we're looking to the same word of God for direction. And most of the time, as we become more and more one flesh, those kinds of, of issues don't come up. We are walking in agreement because we are one flesh. But they, they do come up from time to time, but not as often maybe as they used to as we grow together and learn together in Christ. Um, I, I can think of one illustration between Deb and I where she absolutely did not agree with me at all. We were moving from her dad's house to our rental house. I had one day to do the move. I had a truck, I had a friend, and we had a house. We got a phone call from the rental agency said the papers weren't signed. I said, she said, we could put the stuff in the garage, um, but we can't put it in the house, but it won't be, no insurance on what's in the, in the garage. If the house burns down, if someone steals it, we're not liable, but you can do it if you want. Deb said, we're gonna put it back at my dad's house. I said, no, we're going to put it in the garage and we're going, to, we're going to hope and pray that nothing happens to it. And we went round and round on that. We had a heated discussion about that. And I finally said, this is what we really have to do. And if it falls apart, it's all on me. She said, yes, you're right, it's all on you. And by the grace of God, nothing happened. And what did she do? She willingly submitted to my leadership and she helped us move and we got all in there and thank the Lord, nothing happened. Those kinds of things happen to us as couples, but I think as we grow together in Christ, most of the time we're going to be on the same page because we're becoming more and more one flesh. So submission does not mean we always agree. Secondly, submission doesn't mean you have to stop thinking. You're just as responsible as a wife to become and continue to become one flesh with your husband as he is to you. You cannot do that without bringing everything about yourself into the relationship. His thoughts and your thoughts have to be meshed together. They've got to be filtered together. They've got to be considered together. Wives, when your thoughts and opinions are not brought into the marriage about child rearing and the family budget and who to spend time with and where you attend church and how you recreate or what projects are next, then your husband is missing out on a whole host of ideas that are there to help him, to add wisdom and life and color to his life and marriage. Ecclesiastes reminds us that two are better than one. And without the input of our wives, we are limited at multiple levels. 
Now I know, sadly, there are some marriages where a husband does not and will not listen to your opinion. Now that too is another sermon in itself. And my first response is, I'm so sorry that he is so blind. Because that's not a Christian response to marriage. We have to look at that through counseling and discipleship. And and next week, hopefully, as we look at the husband's responsibility. But submission does not mean a wife stops thinking. And then thirdly, submission does not mean that you're less capable. It doesn't mean that you're not as smart. It doesn't mean that your husband's a better leader. Just because a husband's head of the wife doesn't mean he's sharpest tack in the box. Case in point, you're looking at him. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter 3 for a moment. I'm just going to read from verse 7. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. I'm just going to focus our attention really on one phrase. Peter writes, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That phrase, weaker vessel, has uh, all manner of discussions about it. It's been interpreted a variety of ways. Uh, most commentators agree that being fellow heirs of the grace of life means that men and women are equal. We have a full inheritance in Christ, and our standing before God now and in eternity will be identical. Some of those same commentators, though, they, they will attempt to show, they, they would say that showing honor to our wives as a weaker vessel means that women are, or your wife is weaker physically and weaker emotionally, and really, they would say, less capable to do and process certain things. So we have to treat them as such. Many of you are, are listen to Alistair Begg uh, from Parkside Church, and he has a different view of this verse and phrase, and his interpretation is not exclusive to him. He has said that this cannot mean physically weaker, because there are many women who have far more stamina than their husbands. It can't mean emotionally weaker because we all know that some women can handle far more stress than some men. So he suggests that since our wives are fellow heirs of the grace of life and are equally equal spiritually, that Peter is commanding and telling us that our wives, in obedience to God, they are voluntarily taking the weaker role for the sake of God-ordained order even though in many regards they may be more capable than we are. And since they're putting themselves in a weaker position, since they're voluntarily subjecting themselves to us, we better give them the honor that's due them, especially since they're joint heirs of the grace of life. There are wives that are far more capable than us as husbands, And there are wives who are better leaders than us as husbands. Yet they're obeying God by submitting themselves to his word, to his order, to his creation, and in the case of marriage, to their own husband. And God uses their obedience for his glory as they submit themselves to the role that God has given them. And according to 1 Peter 3, if we as husbands do not live with our wives in an understanding way, in, in a way that we are identifying that, they, that they're willing, voluntary 
least voluntary submission, that we're honoring them as joint heirs of the grace of God, that we're honoring them for their obedience to God's word by being subjected by, by being subject to us, even when we don't deserve it, or even we don't merit it, or even when we're not as capable, if we don't do that, then our prayers are hindered. What this saying is saying is we cannot have a right relationship with God if we don't have a right relationship with our wives, where we honor them for their submissive obedience to God's created order. Now, let me just try to wrap this up with a final example, if you turn with me to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, I just want to give you a final example of a smart, capable, God-fearing, industrious, submissive wife that might help tie all these thoughts together. Proverbs 31, and I'll read from verse 10. Thirty-one, ten. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Now there's certainly uh, things here that are cultural and we don't want the culture to be our guide, but most of us don't have household servants. We don't make our own clothes. And most of us, and the mandate here is not that every wife have a small business on the side that produces household income. But what is here is a wife, is a woman who's submissive to her husband, who has her husband's complete trust and praise, who, who lives her life without getting daily commands from him on what to do. Being in a submissive role doesn't mean that you've cut off your head, nor does it mean you have to go to your husband so he can make every decision for you since he's the leader. I mean, look at her. She's thinking and she's buying fields and she's planting vineyards. She has relationships with merchants. She's in the community and she knows what the needs are. And she's even giving money to the poor. There's no indication here at all that she's 
going to her husband asking, can I please do this, this or that? Because the heart of her husband trusts in her completely. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She's wise. She's kind. She laughs. And though her husband is mentioned three times in the text, the households refer to her household in verse 27. She is in a submissive role, yet she has ownership for everything under her care. And she's free to live her life under his authority. And yet he's not micromanaging her as they both are living lives that are pleasing to the Lord. She's a woman created in the image of God with value and dignity and worth and gifts and thoughts and ideas and plans. And she can make these decisions on her own and still be submissive to her husband's leadership. My point is, being in a submissive role in marriage should never mean you lost your voice, never means you lost your personality, never means you lost your ability to participate in all the areas of your giftedness. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Beloved, this looks a lot like the garden again. This looks a lot like it was before sin entered the picture. This looks like a loving partnership of mutual respect and mutual admiration and mutual work and mutual understanding. And the wow factor for the husband seems to still remain. And now even the children are involved in verse 28 and 29. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The curse and all of its consequences are heavy upon us. Christ has come and freed us from the curse of the law and sin. And it's only in and through him that both husbands and wives, submitting to his creation order, can truly experience the oneness in marriage that was designed before the fall. And, it's, and it does start with the understanding of the song that we're going to close with, Yet not I, both husbands and wives, but Christ in me. Let's pray.